You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. you to follow in your Bible as I read our text for today as we've been studying the letter of Colossians. Colossians today we're in chapter 2. Our main concern here will be to look at verses 6 through 10 but sometimes it's good to back up a little bit to get the context of things. So I think I will read beginning at verse 4, Colossians 2, 4. Listen to God's inspired word. It is with all authority from God himself. Paul writes, I tell you this so no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then... Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow, deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. This is God's Word. Our Father, we ask once more that you be its interpreter, you be the one who puts a seal on us, convict us, encourage us, build us up in this truth of yours. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the last two weeks, the redbud trees have been in bloom as a harbinger of spring with their purple flowers. I never quite understood why they're called redbud when the flowers are purple. But I have three of these trees in my yard, and a couple years ago, I expected fully that it would be reduced to two because one of them was looking rather sickly after a few years of beginning to grow. And I speculated that perhaps the problem was the soil base, as I've known that to be somewhat deficient in my yard. And I thought, well, it looks like there's nothing to lose. Let me see if I can dig this tree out and see what the root ball looks like and maybe give it a new home. And sure enough, those who had planted it had not dug a very large hole and surrounding the tree without very much between the root ball and the outside of the hole that had been dug was clay, hard, gooey clay that most of you may know things don't grow in very well. So I thought, let's see if we can give this tree another chance. And I chose a place in the yard that was lower and more damp and dug this time a good bit larger hole so there'd be a a basin there to fill it with more nutrient topsoil. Put the tree in. I really wasn't expecting a lot. But two years later, to my surprise and pleasure, that tree has gone from being 
sickly to being the best of the three red buds I have in my yard. That's a pleasure to see. Consider another picture that seems quite different, but I hope you'll see the relation as I go along. A salesman traveling in Florida is on a sweltering summer day as only Florida heat and humidity can combine to be oppressive on a person. And this salesman knew that a particular chain of fast food restaurants in that part of Florida sold fresh squeezed orange juice, and he craved a glass to quench his thirst. So he saw one of those restaurants up ahead, pulled in, went in, made his order for some fresh squeezed orange juice, and he was just tantalized, waiting for it with the cold beads running down the outside of the glass, only to be told, I'm sorry, sir, the the juice machine is broken. Well, he walked out of that restaurant, and suddenly he laughed right out loud, because there across the street from him and that Florida setting was a 10-acre orange grove with oranges abundant on the trees. And he just laughed at the irony. The machine was broken. But the resource of what he sought was right there in abundance. It was near, but nobody could access it. There are professing Christians who do not seem to grow spiritually very much. And we need to ask why that is. If they truly know Christ as their Lord by a new birth of faith that the Holy Spirit has wrought upon them, they cannot use the excuse that they are planted in inadequate soil like my redbud tree. For the soil of Christ is more than adequate for all that anyone needs to grow as God expects. Nor can they actually tell God, well, God, your Holy Spirit machine that I depended on to deliver growth to me was broken. I know you want me to grow, but there's a broken link somewhere, and I just couldn't access what I needed to. The explanation is that either that person is not accessing the growth-inducing life and nutrition that God has made available to him in Jesus Christ and his word and Christian fellowship and all the depths of things that stimulate Christians, or perhaps his original faith was in name only, and God has never truly brought his life into that person in the first place. Today, Colossians 2.6 makes a, a bit of a hinge or a transition in our study of this book. You probably see it set apart as a new paragraph in the way your English text of the Bible is, is set forth. And there is a little change of direction here. And the key operative phrase seems to be Paul saying, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. Or the English Standard Version says, continue to walk in Him. He's interested now, having set forth the grandeur and the glory of Christ, as we've had a rich time, I think, in these last few weeks, looking at the picture of Christ given, especially from Colossians 1.15 onwards, the, the absolute grandeur of Christ, His magnificence as a ruler in creation, as ruler over the church, as as the Lord of individual believers, the one who makes all these things happen, who is high and lifted up. He's given us the highest picture of Christ we could have. And He says, now 
in light of that, having received this Christ I've talked about as Lord, go on, continue on in a daily walk without wavering from your feeding upon him and growing upon him. And there will follow then a number of imperative commands. In fact, the whole section from 2.6 to into the early part of chapter 4, actually 4.6 of Colossians, the main body of what is left is more practical application of the doctrinal cornerstone that has been laid down, especially in the majority of Colossians 1. So Paul, you see, never talks theology for very long, but that he begins to apply it. He begins to show how it is really practical in lives. Our time is shorter today with the table of the Lord before us here to develop all these things, but I'll try to see the main issues that are here. The first point I want you to see in this is summarized this way. Let your conversion roots sink ever deeper into Christ. I think many of you know that from a scholarly standpoint, the Bible translation called the Living Bible, which was done by a man named Ken Taylor in the 1960s and early 70s, is an interesting paraphrase of the Bible, but we don't regard it so much as a study Bible. It's not really a close translation of the original languages, but a loose and, and colorful paraphrase. I rarely quote from the Living Bible. I have probably haven't in years, but I remember being a teenager when it first came out, and my youth group leader was quite entranced with it and had us reading it and memorizing things from it. And for some reason, I can't recall exactly what it was. I remember memorizing Colossians 2, 6, and 7 in the language of the Living Bible. Let me tell you what it says. Just as you trusted Christ to save you, trust him too for each day's problems. Live in vital union with him. Let your roots go down deep into him and draw up nourishment from him. That certainly does have the sense of the text quite well, I believe. You know, we frequently use the expression, receiving Christ. That's evangelical code language, isn't it? For the beginning of the Christian life, I received Christ or I accepted Christ. The actual fact of the matter is that the New Testament doesn't use that actual language very often, but here Paul does. He speaks about receiving Christ. Now, if time allowed, we could go to all the other places that we know that there's more to that than just a human action of your will that there is indeed the operation of the sovereign Spirit of God bringing the dead alive and making known that which no human being can, can choose unless God enables us to choose it. But all that is not explained right here. He just says, just as you received Christ. And how did you receive Him? It's very explicit. In fact, it doesn't even say the way we would normally say, received Him as Savior, does it? It says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. So receiving Christ means a recognition of lordship. It means a recognition of a Christ who rules, not a mere intellectual assent. Sometimes I hear people give their version of a testimony, and I shudder a little bit at questioning anybody's testimony, and yet sometimes 
I, I just can't quite believe the almost flippancy which with, they, with which they say, oh, yes, I accepted Jesus. I want to take their shoulders and say, do you realize what you just said? You received the one who is Lord of the universe, the one who rules over all things. You can tell all that we've been studying that Colossians 1 has said about him. And if we receive Christ, the only way to receive him is as ruling Lord. There's no separation. What a folly was heard a number of years ago in theology as a silly intramural discussion went on among evangelicals, whether you could have Christ as Savior and not have him as Lord. Of course you can't. Not in anything the New Testament teaches. You receive him as Lord. And that means a recognition that he rules. That means a bowing of your will before his. There's nothing casual about this. You know, we use the verb to receive a lot of ways. You might say, I, I, receive, uh, I received a book that I ordered in the mail. Or maybe a more important thing, uh, some of you received a college degree in this uh, upcoming season of the year. Well, that's an important thing to receive. But none of those receipts of things begin to measure up to the idea of receiving the Son of the Most High God who comes to a life much in the manner in which the Allied forces came to the beaches of Normandy quite a few years ago. And they came to take up occupation and dwell there and press inward. That's how Christ comes. He comes to seal a transaction with God that is justification by grace through faith that forgives a ruined sinner. And he begins an eternal makeover of that life, aligning it with his own as the eternal blueprint by which God designs every life to be perfected who knows Christ. And so Paul's saying the Christian's roots are well planted. If, if indeed you have accepted Christ as Lord, now that's the premise here. As you have, he says to the Colossians, he knew he, he was writing to a body of people who he believed had indeed. Now, that may not include everybody who reads this text, but if you have received Christ as Lord, now he's saying there's growing for you to do. It's not over. And that same rich soil in which you were planted, the cross of Christ, the good news about that cross, the resurrection, the hope it represents, all those truths are the soil in which your life is going to grow. You don't need to, you know, it's not like you get started in the nursery and then somebody buys you as a tree and, and puts you on a truck and takes you somewhere else to be transplanted. Grow in the soil God planted you in is what Paul is saying. A little bit of the imagery of Psalm 1 might be in the background here. Psalm 1-3 talks about the man or woman of God who is like a tree planted by streams of water, a willow tree by a creek that just flourishes, that lacks nothing it needs to grow abundantly. And Jesus used similar but different imagery that we already heard in this service this morning in John 15 when he said that he was like a great vine And out of that vine grow all kinds of offshoots. And every believer in his name was a shoot off of that vine, telling us that our lives literally grow out of his. And there's a vital connectivity between his life and ours. We have no growth that means anything unless it comes from him. Abide in me, he said, and I will abide in you. 
And so here in Colossians 1, we've been told that that great mystery of the ages, that God is working to reveal his, his mystery plan of the ages, all centers on Christ. It devolves in Christ. And now he's bringing it home and saying, look, just as Christ was the fullness of God revealed, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation, as verse 15 said, he is the Christ who you received. And he comes to you bringing the fullness of God to you. Why would you not cherish this relationship and do everything in your feeble powers to believe in him and cling to him by faith? Now, there's something tacked on here that's certainly not a throwaway at the end of verse 7. I think people might wonder about any kind of indicator. How would I know if I'm growing as a Christian? And I've said many times, I don't think that we individually are our own best judges of Christian growth. Someone close to you, a husband, a wife, a family member, a good Christian friend is the better judge of how you might be growing. But I believe Paul gives us a kind of indicator here at the end of verse 7 of at least one aspect of how you can see some growth happening. Now, you know how it is with a tree. You can measure it by increased height and breadth of the branches and flowers in the spring and abundant leaves in the summer. You know when a tree's doing well. Well, Paul says here there is something that is attached to the Christian life that is an indicator of growth. And he calls it this when he says that you would be growing in him, overflowing with thankfulness. Now, this is easy to miss because it's a very simple thing. And yet, I believe the more things we learn about God and His salvation and Christ and the Word of God, the more these things get into us and become part of us, and they do something. They make us grateful. Our lives become more grateful. Instead of stewing over what is due to me that God hasn't done or why is this thing happening, I'm owed better than this, our lives tend to begin to say in greater ways, maybe not, certainly not perfectly, but in better and better ways, we begin to say, wait a minute, I'm a recipient of the mercy of God. I'm a child of grace. Everything that I am is a gift. And I'm thankful for what God has done already. And I can go forward in thankfulness, not focused inwardly on myself, but with an outward focus and look at God as my benefactor. In His mercy, He has done so much for me already. And you see, simple thankfulness, growing and becoming more common in a Christian life, is a force that dissipates the anger and the strife and the, the gnawing unrest that eats so many people alive. And it's a fairly reliable indicator of the filling and the growth of God's work in Christ. Well, going on then, and this one we really don't have much time to deal with. But verses, verse 8 of our text brings another point, And it's actually stating the encouragement to grow in a, in a negative cast by things that will keep you from growing. And so Paul says, if you want to grow with roots firm in Christ, you must do something else. You must identify and flee from man-made philosophies of life. Don't let anyone take you captive through hollow, deceptive human traditions which are based on the very basic principles of this world, not on Christ. 
Now, it's not classical philosophy of the kind written by Plato and Aristotle that Paul has a problem with here when he uses the word philosophy. It's the guiding ideas that come to be in a society that often are just assumptions that perhaps many, many people take on and begin to live by or be guided by. The Colossians were contending against new speculative ideas being brought in by other teachers who were trying to give them new morality and new doctrine and say, look, to be a real Christian, you've got to be enlightened. You've got to graduate to this level and know this. Well, most people do have a whole complex set of operative values, and they're changing much of the time. They're not necessarily written down. They're governed by what we think other people in this world believe or how other people that might sound wise or convincing guide their lives. They're not necessarily based on Christ. The Miss California contestant in the Miss USA pageant recently found out as she answered a seemingly innocent question about how she defined marriage. And she gave the answer defining marriage the way classical society has defined marriage as being only between a man and woman, and society has defined it that way for about 4,000 years. Not just Western society, but Middle Eastern society and Asian society. All of mankind's morality has defined it that way for thousands of years, and she rather innocently said that marriage is between a man and a woman, and you probably know what happened. An angry gentleman retorted to her as if he spoke for the majority and for the way things are and simply ridiculed her. And, of course, he was representing as a poster boy for gay marriage the idea that, why, there's a new norm. How could you be so stupid? Where have you been? We've advanced. There's a different norm now. But this judge's concept of a philosophy, a tradition of life, didn't come from the revelation of God. It didn't even come from a 51% majority vote of American citizens. It came from a tradition of men, of men looking at what this text calls the elemental things of this world. But suddenly, it doesn't even take a majority. It only takes a highly vocal minority to say, there's a new way. What's wrong with you? And to guide people by guilt and intimidation to reject the truth of God. Gay marriage is but one example of these kinds of things. I'll give one more of what this text would call hollow, deceptive human concepts that bring nobody any sense of fulfillment and are not based on truth. Another one that's really interesting today, you may or may not have heard anything about, is a movement and which really began among evangelical Christians. Most of those who got this movement started in churches were conservatives at one time at least. The movement is called by a title, the Emergent Church, Emergent, trying to tell you that here's a church, you know, that you're supposed to picture as kind of like a chick breaking out of an egg. It's not all the way out yet. The beak is out, the the head is out, but, but it hasn't yet become what it's going to become or what it's trying to become. It's emerging. Well, this is a rather odd movement to me. But yet I I wonder if there aren't some elements of it that are very close to the same heresy among the churches that Paul was dealing with here in Colossae. Because the great dominating characteristic of the emergent church is that while those who started it once knew and once would have propounded the authority of Scripture, now 
they have a whole different theme as they sit around in not even services. They don't really want to talk about services, conversations. They have conversations in designer jeans while we sip our latte. And the main theme is question everything. Because to them, Christianity is not about propositions. It is not about absolutes. It is not about the inerrancy of the Bible. It's an open-ended dialogue. Oh, doesn't that sound grand? A freewheeling narrative discussion that is always in process. That's the emphasis. We're more interested in your questions than in finding answers. Paul was talking about the exact thing in Colossians 2.8. Depending on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, not on Christ. How in the world are we going to recognize the folly of such things unless we know Christ and have him as our plumb line and our compass and our yardstick and our cornerstone? He is the way that we understand that truth is from God. And Paul is saying what you learned from Christ and about Christ in the first place when you received him as Lord is the way you go on. Don't take the crown off his head. Continue to worship him. Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ ascended, Christ ruling is the foundation for all life and knowledge and growth as a Christian. And if you claim you've got something more advanced You're on the first step of what some call post-Christianity. It really is nothing but paganism. Grazing on the dry grass of human speculations and fads leave people spiritually starved and morally emaciated, and Paul knew it. And so thirdly, we come to his strong statement about Christ in Colossians 2, 9, and 10. This is one of those shining statements. There are a number of them that are like beacons here in Colossians, they just shine right off the page. There were several in chapter 1. As he once again summarizes, in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in a human body or in bodily form. And you, believer, have been given fullness in Christ who is head over every power and authority. He's exhorting here that we would seize the fullness of God as it is found only in Christ. The role of Christ in history, he's already shown us, is absolutely exclusive. His person is utterly glorious. His claims are radical. And if you move away from him, if you are transplanted out of him into some other soil, you are now wrongly based and utterly ineffective as far as growth before God. In Jesus Christ, he says, think of it. It's it's an amazing statement. All of the divine nature, everything about God that human beings are going to be allowed to know, dwells in Christ. He is God, the great I am. He is God, the King of kings. He is the creator. He is the one in whom this grand God, the most high, as he's called, chose to make his human dwelling on earth. And if you have received him and called him Lord and King, you have come home to God and God has come home to you. There may be other people, other teachings that have some fragmentary insights about God, but do you hear what Paul's saying? Jesus is God. 
What could be better? In him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. So you have been given God's fullness in Christ. What more could you want? You don't need a telescope or a microscope or a horoscope to discover the reality of God and be up close with him. You only need Christ. There's nothing before him. There's nothing apart from him. There's nothing after him. And the universe, Paul's been arguing all along here, is empty without him. In Christ, you have the divine source from which every blessing of God flows forth. A story is told about a young girl who went to the beach with her mother. She took along a one-quart bottle of drinking water, bottled water. It had mostly been consumed by the time she reached the shore of the ocean. And the little girl poured out what was left of the drinking water and took it down to the surf and let her bottle fill up with ocean water. And then she proudly brought the bottle back to her mom and said, Look, Mom, I have the Pacific Ocean in my bottle. Well, you say, what folly, that wasn't the ocean in that bottle. But it was. It was all of the Pacific Ocean that that little girl was prepared to contain. And had she come with a gallon jug or a five-gallon jug or a, a tank truck, she could have filled it up as full as it could contain. And having done that, she would not have diminished or exhausted the fullness of the Pacific Ocean, would she? But that's what Christians do with Christ. We bring the little containers of our lives, and God fills us with his own fullness, undiluted and original. 2 Peter 1.3 says, Christ's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. So when one of us finite creatures dips our little life into his infinity, we, we become full, full of all of God that is available to us. Charles Wesley gave this conclusion in a hymn we'll sing in a moment. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find And then he went on in the hymn to say, Thou of life the fountain art. Freely let me take of thee. Spring thou up within my heart. Rise to all eternity. May it be for you in your knowledge of Christ and your pursuit of him by faith today. Our Father, as we think on these things, We come to this time of remembrance and celebration. We come to a recognition of Jesus Christ present in our midst in an absolutely real way, in all the fullness of God, the fullness of your love and forgiveness, the fullness of your compassion and understanding, fullness of your acceptance and the the eagerness of you to welcome back that one who's been running, that prodigal who's been perhaps long away from you. 
Our Father, we thank you that you haven't left us empty. You don't expect us to run on empty, but you offer us fullness in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you. Amen.